must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I, saw, when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Friends, the end is near. We are almost done with the book of Revelation. Our journey and exposition through this book has taken us nearly through the entire pandemic. And Lord willing, we'll be able to wrap everything up next week when we return. And this morning we are, we are in what is what you would call the epilogue of the book of Revelation. And at first glance, these verses that you read here are somewhat anticlimactic. If you have your Bibles open, verse 5 is kind of where we stopped off last week. And that seemed to be a very appropriate ending for us. I mean, think about it. In chapter 21, there was a vision of the new heaven and the new earth. And the new Jerusalem has come down. And in chapter 22, there is the return to the Garden of Eden. There is the river of life. There is the tree of life. There's no more sin. No more crying there. Just infinite joy in the face of Christ for in eternity, forever and ever. That sounds like a pretty good ending. And after all the pyrotechnics in Revelation, you would think it would be appropriate to end on that grand crescendo. But it doesn't. I mean, it goes on. 
you could be kind of fooled into thinking verse 6 would be also a good ending. It says, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place, the end. That would be a good ending. But then you look at verse 7. That makes also a good ending. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. The end. But then you get to verse 13 and you're like, I am the Alpha and Omega. The first and the last. The beginning and the end. But this chapter just keeps on going and going. And you're kind of wondering, why are there these 16 kind of modest verses compared to everything else that we've seen in Revelation happening after chapter five, after verse 5? The reason is because verse 5 is not the point of Revelation. The vision of the new heaven and the new earth is the visual climax. It is, it is all that emotion. It is where everything reaches its fevered pitch. But then Revelation needs a few more paragraphs. You know why? Because the, heaven and, the new heaven and the new earth is not the main idea of the book of Revelation. The focus is not on how wonderful heaven is going to be, but about how we are to live now and think now if we are to be in that heaven that is to come. That's why the book ends the way it does. It's a way of saying, hey, look, you've seen all this stuff in Revelation. You've seen the throne room of God. You've seen the judgments come down. You've seen the millennial kingdom. You've seen Babylon fall. You have seen Satan cast out into the lake of fire. You've seen the new heaven and earth. And Revelation is saying, how now shall we live? If these, be, if these things be true, how are we to live as men and women and boys and girls? See, John is not concerned so much about speculation here in Revelation as he is concerned about sanctification. In light of the great victory of Christ, we are to be faithful now. We are to be motivated to live the victorious life now. We are to overcome now. For those of you who were with us when we began this series back in January in 2020, we noted that Revelation is a letter written to the seven letters, uh, written to the seven churches of Asia Minor in chapters two and three. And each of those churches had their problems, they had their temptations. Some were tempted to be unloving, some were tempted to crumple under cultural pressure. Some were beginning to relax morally and theologically. And at the end of each of those seven churches, Jesus addresses seven churches. And at the end of each one, he says, you have to conquer. Jesus calls these churches to conquer. And that's our translation. Or the word is overcome in the NASB translation. Because there are all sorts of temptations for us to compromise. And as Christians, 
if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you kind of might have an idea of like what's the most important things in life. You know, you're probably like God, then family, then, then church or something like that. And we know all those priorities. But we're tempted to sacrifice them on the altar of getting into that school or getting that kind of job or being in that kind of relationship or to build bigger barns. We're tempted to compromise in little ways. We're tempted to be lazy in our prayer life, in our church life. We're tempted to linger on an image that doesn't help us love our spouse more. We're tempted to date a non-Christian. Or we put ourselves in dangerous positions. I mean, we kind of go on a vacation with our boyfriend or girlfriend, and we kind of cheap out and say, hey, let's just get one room instead of two rooms. And what do you think is going to happen? When you're young and the lights are off and the hormones are rampant, or we're tempted to make ourselves more comfortable, tempted to take zero risks for the Lord. We're tempted to keep that friendship by not speaking the gospel. We want to keep a little bit more for ourselves to feel more secure. Or maybe the temptation is what the Christians in Revelation were facing. The temptation to give up in the face of suffering. The cost of being a Christian is just too high. The world wants to put you into its mold and, and it tempts you to want to fold. Or all the other suffering that comes from living in a cursed world. And you're asking, where is God? Where is God in, where is God in, in, in my miscarriage? Where is God because my friends have betrayed me? Where is God because I've lost my family, my health? And Satan is trying to sift me like wheat. Oh, don't temptations rise at that moment. Because you're tempted to curse God and die. So how will you persevere? When Monday comes and you roll out of bed, how will you press on in faith? Endure to the end. How do you, in the language of Revelation, overcome? Well, this morning I want to give you from this passage three habits of those who overcome. Three habits of those who overcome. First, overcomers obey the word of God. Overcomers obey the word of God. Look at verse 7. There is a word of blessing or benediction. Now, it, there's seven blessings in in the book of Revelation, and this is 6 of 7, and it says, Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. That same lang language is found in verse 9. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. The word keep has this idea of observe or pay attention to. Or obey. 
In other words, it is an attentive study of Scripture, not so that we can fill ourselves with more and more knowledge and more and more information, but for us to have a spirit-quickened life of obedience. Now, why must you obey the Word of God? We'll look at verse 6. It says, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord... The God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And then look at verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. In other words, there is this chain of revelation. God has revealed his word through Christ, then an angel to his prophet John, to the churches, to us. The point in this whole sequence is that these words come from God and they are trustworthy and true. These words in Revelation and by extension, all the words of Scripture have power and authority and they demand our obedience. Words matter. Not my words, not the words of any other pastor, not the words of the Pope. The words of God matter. They are trustworthy and true. God is a God of truth. He concerns himself with truth. He reveals himself in truth through words by means of words. So overcomers wake up each day and they obey the word of God. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll have all sorts of warm feelings about me. No. Jesus said, if you love me, you're going to sing loudly for me. No. Jesus said, if you love me, what? You will obey my commandments. And you're thinking to yourself, well, which commandments? Well, let's, there's all sorts of commandments in the Bible, but let's just start with the Ten Commandments. It's not a bad place to start. There's ten of them. One for each finger. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not take the name, the, the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't have anger in your heart against another person. Don't commit adultery. Don't look at somebody lustfully. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet. Don't covet another person's square footage. Don't covet another person's engagement or marriage. If you want to be an overcomer, be in the habit of obeying God's word. Now, some of you might say, all right, you've been laying it on real thick. But I don't want to obey rules. I want a relationship. And you're right. You do need more than rules. More than you know, being, a, being a follower of Jesus, being a Christian is more than just obeying rules and being morally right. Following Christ being, means being united to Christ by faith. There must be both heat and light and affection. And yet you need rules in order to safeguard relationships. We all kind of understand that. For, for those of you who are married, you understand that. You might not have rules written down for your marriage, but you have them. They're there. Husbands, you know the rules. Don't go after other women. 
That's the first commandment, isn't it? You shall have no other wives before me. You don't try to love her through something else or someone else. That's what God meant when he says, don't make for yourself a carved image. He says, don't love me in that way. Don't make for yourself a golden calf and say that you're worshiping me. And so husbands, you don't go on the internet and look at pictures and say, honey, when I look at that picture, I think of you. And you don't talk to her harshly. Just as you don't take the Lord's name in vain, you speak to her with honor and respect. You don't go up to her after a long day and say, what's up, dog? There are rules to preserving your marriage. To help you overcome temptation so you run the marathon of marriage. And, and you might be thinking, so, well, if I follow those rules, then I'm going to be this cookie-cutter Christian. But that's not true. With those rules in place, you can go a lot of different places, yet without them, everything falls apart. Now, I'm not sure if this is going to work, but I'm going to do my best. It's like when you're coding. I I don't know anything beyond hello world, so you're going to have to correct me afterwards. I'm happy to get corrected on this if it doesn't make sense, but there are rules in coding. You don't want typos in your code. You don't have bad formatting. Don't forget to modulize your code. Don't let your IDE lull you into a false sense of security. Don't over-optimize your code. And if you don't follow such rules, your code will be hard to understand, hard to debug, hard to build off of. Those are certain rules to make your code work. Follow them, and then you can code in all sorts of different ways. That makes your code different and elegant you use you can start using tabs instead of spaces you can build with some algorithmic brilliance using boolean algebra or something or a wise selection of data structures so there is but without those rules everything falls apart and this is how we should live in anticipation of the return of the king Let the word of God live in your daily life. Let scripture guide you and shape you. Let it do its powerful work in you. By the spirit, transform you into the image of the Lord Jesus. Because the Bible is not just some passive cadaver for you medical students. That you just observe and say, "Mm, let me take notes about that. That's not what it's about. The word of God is living and active in a two-edged sword. It pierces into the hearts. It is the hammer that shatters the proud heart. It is the seed that grows. Scripture has a job to do in us. So keep God's word. Second, overcomers flee from sin. This is the second habit of the overcomer. They are not only known by what they pursue, which is obedience to God's word, but second, they are known by what they flee from and that's sin notice the sense of urgency in these verses verse 6 what must soon take place verse 7 jesus says behold i am coming soon verse 12 jesus repeats himself behold i am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done and verse 10 the time is near 
Now, I understand there's all sorts of ways to understand the book of Revelation. Some people are saying, well, you know, is there a millennium or is there not really a millennium? You know, I see a rapture. I don't see a rapture. I see Israel in here. I don't see Israel in here. But one thing is unmistakably clear from the book of Revelation is that Jesus is coming and he is coming soon. Now, what does soon mean? Simply put, it means Jesus can come at any time. He's not making a reference to hours or days or minutes, but any moment. There's no other event that needs to occur in history for Jesus to return. And when he does return, it's going to be quick. By the time you know he's returning, it will be too late to do anything about it. There have been generations in the past that have been waiting for this blessed hope. And we may be a generation that's the last generation ever. The long-promised Messiah has come. He died and was raised, and the Spirit's been poured out, and we all await in the return for the glory of Christ to judge the living and the dead. Someday the last person who will ever be converted will come in, and everything will be, will be done. The elect will be filled. People will enter into the new Jerusalem. The heavenly city will be full, and we don't know when that time is, but we know it is coming And that is why throughout all of Scripture, this waiting has meant for the Christian that we flee from sin. Understanding eschatology, understanding the end time, has always mean in the Bible to guard yourself, be awake, be alert. Because he can come at any moment. Revelation 16, 15, he's coming like a thief. So stay dressed, stay ready. Romans 13, 11, you know the time, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, he says what? You know the time, you know God is coming at any moment. He says, so then, cast off the works of darkness and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. 1 John 2, 28 calls us not to toy with sin so that we don't have to shrink back when we see his appearing. 2 Peter 3, in light of the fact that the day of the Lord will come like a thief, he says, what sort of people ought you to be? Holy. That's what he says. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. Be on guard. Be alert and keep watch because it is Saturday afternoon and the eternal Sabbath is about to break upon God's people. But there's more to be said. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. These are kind of confusing words to us when we perhaps first read them. But verse 10 says, John is commanded, seal up the words of the prophecy, for the time is near. And you're like, oh, do not seal up the words of prophecy, for the time is near. Now you're thinking, what's that all about? Well, that's all about the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is kind of like, the Old Testament equivalent to the book of Revelation. And Daniel 12, 9 says, Go your way, Daniel, um, for the words are shut up and sealed until the end of, until the time of the end. So if you look at Daniel, in Daniel 12, 9, he says, seal up the words. But now, in John, he says, don't seal up the words. Why? Because the, it is near the end. Okay. And then verse 11 in Revelation 22 says, Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. 
Now, when you read it, you're probably wondering, what is God saying there? Well, again, Daniel 12 helps us because right after Daniel 12, 9 is Daniel 12, 10. And there, Daniel says, in prophecy, many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. So Daniel sees in the Old Testament this prophecy that at the end, some people are going to get it, and some people won't. And what Daniel saw as prophecy, John now sees in the book of Revelation as coming to pass, as exhortation. And essentially, verse 11 is saying that in these last days, God is going to say, have it your way. Now, I think this happens in two respects. It can happen at the very last stage of history when the decisive judgment is upon us. Jesus returns. His judgments will come. The earth will rock and roll. And at that moment, the time to change your mind is over. Jesus won't say, I mean, when, when, when Jesus comes back, you won't say, oh, no, Jesus, oh, he's coming back. Uh, Jesus, I, I love you. There will be a point of no return, in other words. That will be a point of return, no return. When God begins his final act of salvation and judgment on earth, he will not offer pardon to the lost at that moment. He came the first time to seek and save the lost, and in his mercy he's doing that right now, but when he comes again, he will bring his recompense with him. He will repay each one for what he has done. He will judge us as we deserve. And people at that moment will not have a change of heart. They will forever, unrepentantly, shake their fist at God, even as they are thrown into the lake of fire. See, overcomers flee from sin. They know Jesus will come like a thief unexpectedly, so they're not messing around. Overcomers don't say, hey, you know, I'm young, I'm just going to... Hey, I'm just going to do what young people do. And what do young people do? They sin a lot. What's wrong with another day of sin? What's wrong is that you don't know if you will have another day. That's the first way verse 11 happens. But here's the second way. It is that our hearts can get so callous to the voice of God that he finally gives us over to our own ways. We don't have to wait till Christ's second coming for this to happen. Does God ever come to a point where he abandons sinners in their sin? Does God ever say, no more? I will not grant you repentance. You have forfeited forgiveness. The frightening answer is yes. This can happen after you listen to the sermon. Today could be the umpteenth time you've listened to the gospel and you've chosen to ignore it. And today could be the day that God says, all right, I'm done. Seeing, you will not see. Understanding, you will not understand. 
That's what Jesus says. That's what Isaiah says. The book of Hebrews testifies to this. First John testifies to this. It's a bit like being a parent. I have a daughter who will not be named, but who we're always warning and exhorting. Don't touch that. It's dangerous. Don't touch that pot. It's hot. And even after multiple warnings, she inches her tiny little hands closer and closer. We speak slower to her. Don't touch the pot. It will burn your hand. There are consequences, as if talking slower will help. But the hands keep moving. And there comes a point when all good parents will say, okay, let the child who wants to touch the hot pot touch as much of it as she wants. And they do. That's kind of what God does. You want to touch the pot? I'm done pleading with you, warning you and coaxing you to stop destroying yourself. This happens all the time. Someone say, someone will tell you, you don't want to marry him or her because you two are unequally yoked. Or I don't think it's wise for you to put yourself in that compromising position or stop holding on to that bitterness and forgive. And you hear it and you say, mm, thanks, no thanks. And we hear God speaking in a sermon in God's word from other people and we decide to live life our own way and that is the most dangerous thing that can happen to you. Dangerous for your eternal well-being that you would hear the voice of God and you would say, eh. Because you do not know when God will hand you over. Hand over your hard heart and say, let the evildoer still do evil. If you're here this morning and not a Christian, don't wait till you get married to become a Christian. Don't wait till you're retired to become a Christian, to get right with God. You may have no interest in God in a year. Do not presume on God's mercy. And if you are actually listening to me, if you are actually listening to God's word this morning, if you're actually hearing what is being said, then God's mercy is on you right now in his kindness. He has not yet come yet. He has not come Today is still the day in which you can turn to the Lord. Today is still the day in which you can repent. His kindness, his patience towards you right now is to lead you to repentance. So if you hear his voice this morning, do not harden your heart. Overcomers obey the word of God and flee from sin. I know our, our time is, is up. I've used up a lot of our time already. Don't worry. The end is near. Uh, overcomers 
Third, look to Christ. Overcomers, third, look to Christ. I'll make this one short. There is an exalted picture of Jesus in these verses. In verse 13, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. These are the same descriptions God gives to himself that Jesus himself takes on. In other words, Jesus is God. Jesus is far more than a teacher. And these titles tell us that Jesus is inescapable. He is the beginning of history. He is the end of history and everything in between. And then verse 16 says, I am the root, Jesus says, and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus is not only the fulfillment of the Davidic messianic promises, he's the offspring of David, but What's kind of cool is that he's also the root. Meaning that David comes from him. Comes from Jesus. And Jesus is the fulfillment of Numbers 24. He is the bright morning star. The, the morning star is a star that appears right before dawn breaks. And so it's, he's saying uh, this, this is a fulfillment of Numbers. And, and what he's saying is that just as surely as, as when the, you see the morning star and you know, okay, morning's about to come. And Jesus is going to pull in the kingdom behind him. He is the herald of the new dawn of eternity. This is the glorious and exalted Christ that we look to. Now, in verse 14 is the seventh and final benediction in Revelation. And it says, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. So the picture here is of a, of a robe that you have and woven onto that robe of fabric is every thought and every action and every spoken word in your existence. And you're always adding and growing to this robe. There are lifelong threads of, of uh, speech and omission and negligence. And it represents your life and mine and it is filthy. But the gospel is this, is that God provides a remedy a detergent for our robes, and it's a crimson bath, a bath that comes from the shed blood of Jesus, and a bath that is able to wash away all our sins. And the only solvent to staining sins is the Savior's shed blood. Overcomers look to Christ and wash their dirty clothes in the blood of the Lamb. You know, what's interesting, when you look at that verse is that in the Greek, the words, those who wash, comprises of a definite article followed by a present active participle. And for the grammarians out there, those nerdy grammarians out there, the idea here is of ongoing action. It, it could be translated, those who are characterized by an ongoing activity of washing their robes, have the right to the tree of life. In other words, overcomers look to Jesus over and over and over again, every day and every hour, because this is one of the big mistakes that we make. We think, oh, I accepted Jesus once in college. And then, you know, ever since then, I was saved by grace through faith. And ever since then, the rest of my life, I'm just trying my hardest to be a good person. But it's still by grace through faith. 
you still need to look to Jesus. You still need to look to him in the word. You still need to look to him by worshiping with God's people. You need to look to him in prayer, crying out, wash me, save me. So don't think that because you became a Christian that you're done looking to Christ or that Christ is done rescuing you. Overcomers, keep looking to Christ because what Satan would love is for us to look at anything else. And even for some of us, we are so filled with guilt as believers. We feel that we need to clean ourselves before looking looking to him. Our sins make us even ashamed to lift up our heads. But, beloved, when Satan tempts you to despair, look upward. Look Look, see him who made an end to all your sins. So, beloved in church, eternity is at stake. You are on a pilgrimage. You're on a journey. And the weight of eternity does hang in the balance. And dogs and sorcerers, the sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, everyone who practices those things and falsehoods, they will have no place in heaven. But if you overcome, if you are done playing games with Christianity, if you're done with casual obedience, if you're done fooling around with sin, if you look to the treasure and joy that is Christ today, and then Monday, and every other day, every, every week, and the day after that, or however long it is until Christ's return, the promise is you will be blessed. You will eat of the tree of life. Some people will stumble along the way, and some people will need to get picked up. Some will jog on the path, and some will walk. Some will meander off the path. And they will need to be brought back in. But if you coast, if you just drift along, you will not make it. So church, overcome. Beloved, overcome. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these last words in your word. Last words are often words of importance even as we are coming to a close of the book of Revelation, we realize just how important they are and how important these reminders are for us as a church to keep on overcoming, to be in the habit of overcoming, though we may stumble. Help us to have eyes to see Christ. And we pray for those who are here this morning who do not yet know you. Those who are thinking they might have a little bit more time. Would you cause them to see Christ? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.